Chapter 6. Changed by Sight Sight is one of those things I took for granted until I was confronted with the possibility of losing it. Shortly after I got married, I heard an ad on the radio by a doctor offering laser eye surgery for a ridiculously low price. It didn't occur to me that contracting out your eyeballs to the lowest bidder was not really a good idea. I think it was the fastening of the strap around my head that finally triggered in my mind what was about to happen. Suddenly it became crystal clear that they were about to remove my cornea and reform my retina with a high-powered incineration laser. Now, helpless, I watched the little knife slice the cornea of my right eye. I realize that doesn't sound like the kind of thing you want to watch, but where else is there to look at that moment? After the cornea was removed, I was treated to a two-minute kaleidoscopic light show coupled with a curious burning rubber smell. And though two minutes doesn't sound like a long time, it feels like days when your cornea is in a petri dish on the table beside you. All I could think about the whole time was, what if there's an earthquake? Earthquakes are not common where I live in North Carolina, but I've watched History Channel's unexpected mega disasters enough to know that there's no telling when the next big one is coming. Thankfully, no earthquake, and the whole process for both eyes lasted only 15 minutes. The doctor replaced the cornea in my eye, painted it over with a little eyeball super glue, sat me up, and ever since I've been able to see 2020. For those of you considering laser eye surgery, be encouraged. I realize I probably wasn't in any real danger of never seeing again, but lying there during the surgery, I had some sober moments to reflect on the value of my sight. Without sight, there is so much of life that we'd miss. We wouldn't know the beauties of color or the majesty of a sunset. We wouldn't know the thrill that comes into our hearts from seeing the look of delight in our children's faces or the affectionate gaze of our spouse. Spiritual sight is even more important. Spiritual sight is how we perceive God. Without spiritual sight, you miss out on the most glorious display in the universe. And the tragedy is that if you are spiritually blind, you have no idea that you're missing anything at all. Once we have our eyes open to the beauty of God, we can really start to understand the second part of the gospel prayer. Your presence and approver are all I need for everlasting joy. The Apostle Paul says spiritual sight is what changes us. Seeing the love of God and the glory of Christ is what restructures our hearts and reorders our desires. That's why twice in the book of Ephesians, Paul asked God to give the Ephesians spiritual sight. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your understanding light, that ye may know what is the hope and his power. And, he prays, you may have strength to comprehend the love of Christ. Paul's second prayer comes right in the middle of the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters were deep gospel doctrine. The last three a remarkably relevant instruction for living. Christian teachers often debate which is the more important of those two, the doctrine or the application. I suspect Paul would say that while both are important, the most important thing of all is seeing the beauty and glory of God revealed in the gospel. 
When the glory of God is seen in the gospel, changes occur naturally. The goal of preaching, then, is neither the conveyance of information nor instruction and application. The goal of preaching is worship. Doctrine helps describe the God we must see. Application helps us see how to love the God we have seen. But both are useless if the eyes of the heart have not been opened to see and savor the beauty of God. Seeing what Israel saw. Just as Paul prayed for the Ephesians, the first thing God did when he led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt was open their eyes to who he is. Exodus 19 says that he descended upon Mount Sinai, wrapping it in smoke and thick darkness. Lightning and thunder filled the skies. A sound like a trumpet pierced the air, growing louder and louder until it was almost unbearable. God gave Moses strict instructions that no one was to touch the mountain, no one, not even an animal. If anyone so much as crossed the perimeter set around the mountain, they would be struck dead. God then spoke to them out of the mountain, reminding them that they were a treasured possession to him, and that he had carried them on eagles' wings out of slavery unto himself. When the people saw this, here is how they responded. All the people in the camp trembled, and they believed. As a result of that belief, the Bible records in 19.8 and again in 24.3 that the people said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Here is the progression. The people saw, the people believed, the people obeyed. On that day they saw God's awesome size, his untouchable holiness, and his tender mercy. That sight produced both a fear of God and faith in God. It was awe and wonder mingled with intimacy. The unapproachable God was also their tender father. Awe combined with intimacy is the essence of Christian worship. And then they pledged to obey. Really seeing those three things, God's awesome size, his untouchable holiness, and his tender mercy is how we will change too. God's awesome size. In the thunder and earthquakes and lightning, they saw that he was the God who commanded the magnificent powers of creation. There is something about awesome displays of nature that give you a glimpse of how big God is. Have you ever looked into the night sky and thought about how big the universe is? Astronomers tell us the distance between the sun and earth were the thickness of one piece of paper, then the distance between the earth and the closest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. The distance across the galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And our galaxy is but one of hundreds of thousands of galaxies in the known universe. There is a God behind all of this who spoke it into existence with just a word and holds it all in the palm of his hand. The molecules obey his every word. Stars come into and out of existence at his whim. He is so big that you literally cannot exaggerate him. Awesome displays of nature, volcanoes, thunderstorms, sunsets, tornadoes, tsunamis, remind us of that. The Israelites got a taste of that at the mountain. I believe that most people did, 
today have lost a sense of God's awesome size. We reduce God to a domesticated, middle-class-sized deity that we can explain and control. He is not. The infinite God staggers the mind. When we try to reduce God to someone we can explain and control, we actually cripple people's ability to believe in him. Charles Misner, one of Einstein's students, explained that the reason Einstein never believed in the Christian God had a lot to do with how Christian preachers in his day spoke about God. The design of the universe is very magnificent and should not be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religions, although he struck me as basically a very religious man. Einstein must have looked at what the preacher said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen more majesty than he had ever imagined in the creation of the universe and felt that the God they were talking about couldn't have been the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that the churches he had run across did not have proper respect for the author of the universe. When we speak of God, we speak of one whose size and power and wisdom and might are far beyond our own. Perhaps one of the reasons we fail to treasure God is we have such a limited view of him. God is a God of such massive size that our minds cease questioning when we see him. We tremble and believe God's untouchable holiness. No one could touch the mountain, God said. You cannot see my face and live. God is a God of such infinite perfection that not even the slightest sin in his presence can be tolerated. When Isaiah, the prophet of God, saw God upon his throne, he fell upon his face, terrified, and said, Surely I am ruined. I have seen the Lord. When Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the Ark of the Covenant where God's Spirit dwelled, he was struck dead. God is a God whose holiness and perfection is so complete that sin cannot exist in his presence. I, peer, I hear people often speak glibly about seeing God. If God ripped the roof off the place where you were sitting right now and you saw his face, you'd immediately die. Standing in the presence of God with sin would be like a tissue paper touching the surface of the sun. Seeing and sensing God's holiness made Israel tremble. We often think that we have done God a favor by downplaying the whole idea of his judgment. Our user-friendly God does not punish sin. He certainly doesn't send people to hell, but hell gives us a picture of the absolute perfection and beauty of God. Hell is what hell is because God is who God is. Hell is what hell is because that's what sin against an infinitely beautiful and glorious God deserves. Hell is not one degree hotter than our sin demands that it be. Hell should make our mouth stand agape at the righteous, just holiness of God. Have you ever heard someone say that God should not be feared, only respected? You'd have a hard time selling that to the Israelites after their encounter near the mountain. The encounter was designed to produce fear. It is only when we see the holiness of God, a sight that should terrify us, that our hearts learn to worship him. A God that can satisfy our souls is a God that is so infinitely beautiful that sin against him requires severe and infinite punishment. Do you realize how completely pure and perfect God is? 
Do you realize what danger the presence of sin in your heart places you in? Imagine you were drinking a glass of milk and I told you that it had been mixed with a few drops of human blood contaminated by the AIDS virus. That's not much, but touching that glass of lips, milk to your lips would repulse you. We stand before God wholly contaminated by sin. Sin cannot exist in the presence of God. Israel had good reason to be afraid. True worship begins with fear. It doesn't end there, but that's where it starts. God's tender mercy. As Israel trembled before God's awesome size and absolute holiness, a voice spoke to them in the mountain, giving them these tender words. You have seen how I bore on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You are my treasured possession. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. God says to them, I saw your suffering and I heard your cries. I picked you up tenderly like a father would carry a wounded child out of a wreck and brought you to myself. There's an image I see frequently on the news that always moves me, whatever the context. The cameras are on the scene of some tragedy, and they'll capture some image of a father carrying the bloody, broken body of a child out of the wreckage. Maybe it's because I'm a, now a dad of four children, but seeing a father who has taken on his child's pain touches me somewhere deep in my soul. And I love that the word treasure, God calls them his treasured possession. To treasure something means that you'd give up just about anything for it. If I found out my children had contracted some rare disease and their only hope was for an expensive medicine that insurance would not pay for, I would sell everything I had to get that medicine for them. Why? Because I treasure them. The mighty God of the universe, the God who has everything and lacks nothing, calls a helpless, guilty people his treasure. He heard their cries, entered their pain, and rescued them. There is only one word I can think of to describe a God so absolutely perfect that once in his presence leads to immediately annihilation, yet so tender and compassion that he enters into our pain to rescue us. Beautiful. Sight breaks the power of sin. Israel's response to the revelation was that they believed and they trembled. They said, whatever God says to us, we will do. In light of what they'd seen, this is the God they wanted to know and obey. They changed, not just in their behavior, but in their desires. They wanted to know and obey God. When we see the size and beauty of the God who speaks to us, the power of sin and idolatry over our hearts is broken. The way that we will stop sinning is not by being told over and over, stop sinning, but by seeing the majesty and glory of God in our hearts. But wait, you might say, the Bible is full of directives and prohibitions. Isn't the point of the Bible to stop sinning? Yes, but ceasing sin is the byproduct of seeing God. As we see the beauty of God and feel his weightiness in our hearts, our hearts begin to desire him more than we desire sin. Before the Bible says, stop sinning, it says, behold your God. Think of it like a balloon. There are two ways to keep the balloon afloat. If you fill a balloon with your breath, then the only way to keep it in the air is to continuously smack it up. That's how religion keeps you motivated. It repeatedly hits you. 
Stop doing this. Get busy with that. This is my life as a pastor. People come on a Sunday so I can smack them about something. Be more generous. And they do that for a week. Go do missions. And they sign up for a trip. Every week I smack them back in a spiritual orbit. No wonder people don't like being around me. But there's another way to keep a balloon afloat. Fill it with helium. Then it floats on its own. No smacking required. Seeing the size and beauty of God is like the helium that keeps us soaring spiritually. When you have seen the beauty of God and felt the weightiness of God's majesty in your soul, sin's power over you will be broken. I often tell college-aged guys at our church that you can turn their sexual drives on and off like a light switch. They never believe me. I tell them I'll prove it to you. Imagine that you are alone with your girlfriend, sitting with her on the couch at her house. Your sexual desires to begin to take over and you feel like there is no way you can turn them off. At that moment, you feel totally out of control, like there is no way to say no to the power of temptation. They say exactly. I tell them, at just that moment, her army ranger father walks in. See, sexual desire off like a light switch. Where did it go? It is not that they suddenly lost libido. It was just that in that moment, their fear of her ranger father was weightier to them than the sexual lust. Desire for her was surpassed by a desire to avoid death. The reason many of us feel like we can't say no to temptation is that God does not have that kind of weight in our hearts. God's authority must be greater than our desires. His beauty should be more attractive than any lust of the flesh. In other words, the reason we can't say no to temptation is not that our desires for those things is too large. It's because our desire for God is too small. In order to really say no to the desires of temptation, we need to develop a stronger desire for God. Lesser urges can only be expelled by stronger ones. Puritan Thomas Chalmers called this the expulsive power of a new affection. Our affection for idols are brought under control only when they are taken captive by a stronger, more enchanting affection. Until that happens, all changes we make will be superficial. We will obey only when we think there is a threat of punishment or the promise of reward. The kind of obedience is wearisome both to God and to us. We are forcing our hearts to pursue what they don't want to pursue. Most people live in a dual captivity. They are captive to their sinful lusts of their heart, but they are also captive to the rules of their religion. Sin makes them desire the wrong thing. Their religion keeps them from doing what they now desire. Seeing the glory of God revealed in the gospel gives us freedom from both sin and religion. The gospel sets us free from the threat of condemnation and changes our hearts so that we want to know and serve God. You say, but wait, if people think that Christ has already taken all the penalty for their sin and no threat of punishment remains, what then will they then will they do whatever they want? Well, at least now we're asking the right question. This is exactly the objection Paul expected after laying out the gospel in Romans 1 through 5. His answer is, if people only want to pursue sin, that reveals that their hearts are spiritually dead. The answer is not, Paul says, to slap rules on them. If your heart loves sin, throw yourself on the mercy of God, asking him to change your heart and embrace his righteousness given to you as a gift. Only then will your heart change. The goodness of God, Paul says, is what produces real repentance in us. Freedom from sin, you see, is 
hating sin. As the early church father Ignatius said, it is impossible for a man truly to be freed from the habit of sin before he hates it. You will only hate sin when you start to love God. You learn to love God by seeing his beauty and love for you revealed in the gospel. The leaders of the church had placed John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, in prison for preaching the gospel. They told him, you can't go on telling people that Christ's righteousness has been credited to them in full. If they believe that, they'll feel like they can do whatever they want. Bunyan replied, if people really see that Christ's righteousness has been given to them entirely as a gift, they'll do whatever he wants. So where can we see God? So you say, where can we see God like that? Where's our mountain where God descends before us in fire? Good question. I'm not telling you to break out Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments and watch it over and over and over. The mountain in Exodus 19, as impressive as it was, was just a dim shadow of a later mountain where God's glory would be revealed. Mount Calvary. More than 1,400 years after God appeared on Mount Sinai, Jesus would climb up another mountain to put God's glory on display. Just like Sinai, Calvary was covered by a thick cloud of darkness. As God turned his face away, on the cross Jesus would endure the thundering of God's judgment and absorb the lightning of his wrath into his body. The fire of God's holiness would burn through the body of Christ until it completely consumed him. We transgressed the lines of God's holiness and Jesus was struck dead for it. When Jesus died, the earth literally shook and the last thing Jesus would do from the cross is yell with a voice like a trumpet, it is finished. The burning mountain of Exodus 19 was a picture of Mount Calvary where Jesus gave us the clearest and most complete picture of the glory of God. In the cross, we see the magnanimity of God's grace. God did more than carry us on eagles' wings from danger. He rescued us out of the jaws of death by substituting himself in our place. Imagine staying about a half mile from the Hoover Dam, that massive structure holding back untold amounts of water. Imagine, to your horror, that you suddenly saw a crack forming up from the bottom of the dam, only to see a massive force of water burst through the dam and wave 500 feet high come rushing down the valley toward you. Death is certain, but suddenly, right before the water sweeps you away, the ground in front of you opens up and swallows every ounce, so that not a drop touches you. When Jesus died on the cross, he stood between us and the rushing river of God's righteous wrath. He swallowed up every ounce into himself, so that not a drop remains for you or me. He drank the cup of God's wrath to its dregs, turned it over, and said, It is finished. He did that for you because you are a treasure to him. In the cross, we see the massiveness of God's power. The gospel reveals a greater power than even the power of creation. It is the power of new creation, redeeming from sin and regenerating life from death. Paul calls the gospel the power of God. Did you know that nothing else in Scripture except for Christ himself is referred to directly as the power of God? Think about that. The sun is 9,900 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface and 27 million degrees at its core. Tsunami waves rise up 100 feet high and travel at over 80 miles an hour, destroying everything in their paths. A recently discovered star is reported to streak through the heavens at 1.5 million miles per hour. 
We know of volcanoes that spew lava up to 17 miles into the atmosphere and whose eruptions can be heard more than 3,000 miles away. One human DNA strand invisible to the human eye contains enough information to fill 1,500-page books. None of those is called the power of God. Jesus's victorious work of putting away our sin forever and rising triumphant over the grave, however, is what God calls my power. As you see and believe that gospel, its power is actually released into you. You see, the gospel not only tells us about the power of God, the message of the gospel is itself the power of God. By the power of the Spirit, the hearing of the gospel recreates our hearts to love the things God commands. Think of it like Jesus' command to the lame man to walk. When Jesus said, rise, take up your bed and walk, he was giving the lame man not only a command, but his words also gave the power to obey that command. In the same way, the gospel, God gives the power to do what he commands. Believing the gospel is not only the way we become Christians, it is the power that enables us to do, every moment of every day, the very things Jesus commands us to do. Mahmoud's Vision One night, while I was living in an Islamic country, I received a phone call from a man I had never met named Mahmoud. Mahmoud explained to me that he had a very important dream, and he believed that I was supposed to help him interpret it. In his dream, he had wandered aimlessly in another field. This field, he told me, seemed to him to symbolize his life. He felt alone, without purpose, true companionship or, or direction. After walking for what seemed like days, he heard a voice behind him call his name. There he saw a man who, in his words, was dressed in shining white clothing. I could not look on his face because it shone like the sun. This heavenly man reached into the sash of his robe and pulled out a copy of the gospel and tried to place it in Mahmoud's hands. This, the man said to Mahmoud, calling him by name, will get you out of this field. Mahmoud refused. Mahmoud was a faithful Muslim, and he had no desire to possess Christian literature. He woke up in a cold sweat, heart beating quickly and feeling very afraid. He said he felt as if he had rejected a prophet and did not know what to do. When he fell asleep the second night, he found himself again in the field. Again, the man appeared, offering Mahmoud another copy of the gospel. And again, Mahmoud refused. The third night, when Mahmoud went to sleep, the man was there waiting on him. This and only this, he said to Mahmoud, will get you out of the field. With trembling hand, Mahmoud took the gospel from the man. Mahmoud then said to me, My friend tells me that you are an expert in the gospel. Can you interpret my dream for me? No joke. That is what he said. Now, I was raised in a very traditional Baptist house, and dreams or visions were not part of our standard religious repertoire. So I said, Mahmoud, I don't believe in visions and dreams. No, not really. I looked at him and said, Brother, you are so in luck. Dream interpretation just happens to be my spiritual gift. For the next two hours, I explained the gospel to him. Though he still had questions, he didn't really doubt the answers I was giving him. After all, he'd been instructed by a divine messenger to listen. When I explained to him how Jesus had taken his sin on the cross, he said, with tears streaming down his face, Allah, the Creator God, dying in my place, can this be true? Oh, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. 
what Muslims say when they give praise to God, meaning literally God is the greatest. It was obvious he had believed, so I asked him if he would like to place his faith in Jesus. When he said yes, I asked him if he knew that such a commitment might cost him. Mahmoud, I said, you may lose your job. You might get kicked out of your family. This commitment to Christ might even cost you your life. And I'll never forget what he said next. He smiled and said, of course I know all that. That is why it took me over a month to come to talk to you. Because I knew that if I became a follower of Jesus, it might cost me everything. But if Jesus Christ is God, and God gave himself like that for me on the cross, I will go anywhere with him. If I lose my job, my family, or my life, it is okay. I'd go with Jesus anywhere. Now, you may never have had a vision of Jesus in your dreams like that. I haven't either. While our experience may not be that dramatic, our response to Jesus should be no less total. We see the glory of God, Paul says, in the face of Jesus Christ presented to us in the Gospels. What we see there is better than a dream or a vision. Becoming a follower of Jesus means having your heart so enraptured by the beauty, majesty, and value of God's gift of himself to you that knowing and pleasing him becomes the one driving passion of your heart, even if it costs you everything else. What about you? Do you feel the weight of God's majesty in your soul in this way? You may have read the Bible a thousand times, but you have may not have ever been so overwhelmed at the display of God's power and glory that you tremble. Before Christianity tells you to do anything, it calls you to sit in wonder and amazement at what God has done for you. Is your heart captivated by the glory and beauty of God? Are you overcome by a sense of awe and drawn in by a feeling of intimacy? If not, why not get down on your knees right now and beg God to open the eyes of your heart to let you see him for who he really is? Better yet, why not get down on your knees, open the pages of the Gospels, and pray that the Jesus who walks through the pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John gives you a glimpse of his true majesty. You'll never be the same, and you'll find yourself saying these words, over and over again, now with your whole heart. Your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy.